Hello and welcome back to our devotions on the Gospel of John. Today I want to talk about the discourse between Jesus and the believing Jews about freedom from sin. This whole discourse can be found in John chapter 8, verse 31 to 56. John chapter 8, verse 31 to 56. However, for this devotion, I will focus on verse 31 to 38. Let's now listen to the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that you sent Jesus to teach us, to show us the truth. We ask now that as we read your word, that as we reflect on the truths that you have, that indeed you will reveal to us that we are your children. And as we believe you, you will set us free. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8 verse 31 Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we look at what Jesus was talking about, about freedom from sin and slavery to sin, I want to make two observations first. The first is that Jesus was addressing Jews who had believed in him. Think about it. How bizarre was Jesus' behaviour towards these Jews? These were the few Jews who had believed in him. Jesus had preached and many Jews did not, but these were the precious few who had believed in him. And they came. But rather than pleasing the Jews and praising them and affirming them, Jesus told them hard truths that they were children of the devil. Can you imagine that? That these were Jews who claimed that Abraham was their father and that was true. And they had come to believe in Jesus. But instead of telling them good things, Jesus told them hard truth that you, your father is not Abraham, your father is not God, your father is the devil, the murderer, the father of lies. What was Jesus doing? Was he just being rude? Perhaps if we thought about it, it emphasizes that Jesus was not interested in his popularity. Jesus wasn't interested in keeping disciples. He was interested in the lives and the souls of the people who came to him. That if indeed they were children of the devil, he had to tell them that. He had to tell them that they were slaves to sin. And it did not matter that they had already come to believe him and that by telling them these truths, he might alienate them and they may walk out from him. Simply because Jesus wasn't looking for fame, or for followers. He was thinking of how he could really reach deep into the people he came to meet. 
And that tells us something about the role of the church, the mission of the church. As I mentioned yesterday, the day before and uh, several times before that, that Jesus isn't, God isn't interested in his fame, in being placed on a pedestal, or any of that kind of thing. And neither should the church. The mission of the church is not to retain its members or, in a more worldly sense, to retain its customers. We are not here to retain our customer base. We are not here to grow our customer base either. The role of the church, the role of the pastors, the leaders, each believer, is to care for the people who come to us and the people who are with us. We are to care for the souls, the lives of those God has entrusted to us. And whether we Whichever approach we take, whether we please them or we alienate them, we hurt their feelings, our deepest concern is not that they remain in the church, but that they be ministered to deep within them. And we must keep very faithful to this. Of course, it doesn't mean then that we should be abrasive all the time. Jesus was actually hardly ever abrasive. But it does mean where our focus show us where our focus is that our focus is on the lives of people not on the swelling of membership in our class in our church or in large numbers coming to us the second observation then is that these jews found the security in being children of abraham but what jesus confronted them with was reality He was telling them, fine, you say you're children of Abraham, then why do you reject God's word? Fine that you are the children of Abraham, then why do you seek to kill me? Why are you still murderers? Jesus gave them a reality check. It's not enough just to say, by faith, I believe that I'm the child of Abraham and therefore I'm no longer a slave. I've never been a slave. I'm a free man. But if you're a free man, then why do you reject the word of God? If you are a free man, Jesus said, then why are you so afraid of hearing the truth about God? Why do you seek to snuff out the truth about God? Here was the reality check. And the reality of the Christian faith too is that we must face truth. and We must face reality check as well. We could say we are the children of God, we are therefore free, we have joy, we have the love of God, we have all these things. And then we have to look at our lives. Do we really love God? Do we really love our neighbours? Do we love our enemies even? Do we forgive them? Are we compulsive sinners? Are we still tied to sin? Doing things that are without pleasing God? Doing things that hurt God? Doing things that hurt others? Now if we continue that way, if we continue to hate others, live very selfish lives then we have to face that reality that for all that we claim that we are children of a wonderful father that maybe something is missing we have to come back to God and so just because we just because I preach I preached for 30 years I pastored for 30 years just because we are Bible study leaders just because we are teachers of the Bible for many years We could say that we are mature Christians. We have been Christians for many, many years and others are just young Christians. 
just because we have positions in the church doesn't make us children of a loving Father. What shows us evidence of children of a loving Father are those who love the Father embraced by him, enjoying embracing his love, embraced in his love, and loving others as well. And as long as that is not true, then we have to ask ourselves, really, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? So now then we look at what Jesus was actually teaching them. He says that the truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, let's look at this sentence alone. and This is important. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. First then, what is the truth? We turn back to John chapter 1, and then we look back at all the teachings of Jesus. The truth is that God, our Creator, the one who made us all, who made the universe and everything else, has come after us, has come to seek after us. We are no longer living in a God-forsaken world. God has not forsaken you. God has not left you to your own devices, to your own survival, to struggle and claw your way through life. God came to look for you. So often we get the sense that we must be pleasing to God, we must make God happy before God will listen to us, that we must behave ourselves before God will come to us. But the truth is that while we were yet sinners, while we were living in this God-forsaken, life-destroying, soul-sucking existence on earth, God came to look for us. So to believe in this means that we no longer think that God has deserted you, that God is far from you, that just because you have sinned, just because you're not good, doesn't mean that God isn't near you. The truth is that while we were in a mess, God came after us, not in anger, but in love. And God says to us, you are mine. Come back to me. The truth then is that it is the second. The other truth then is that this God who created us is coming back to us to give us life. You see, much of life as we see it has sucked out everything from us. That we are often just existing, existing from day to day, waiting for the day we die, waiting for a treat here and there that will make us a little happy today and then sad again. Close friend of mine says this, honestly, life sucks. And I think many of us feel this way that life really sucks. You don't enjoy very much, you enjoy a little bit here and there, but most of the time, life sucks and life is miserable. The reality is that God has come to us to give us life. Next reality then is that as Jesus says, He is the living water, is the bread of life. And all of these things mean one thing, that He satisfies the deepest needs, the deepest longings of our lives. That Jesus is the light in our darkness. Darkness always connotes depression, sadness, hopelessness, despair. And Jesus is the bright light that takes away that despair, the, dis the depression, the hopelessness. Jesus is that bread 
that fills a person. When we are hungry, it is not necessarily hunger for food. We hunger for love. We hunger for meaning. We hunger. We hunger for purpose in life. We hunger for something that fills deep inside us, just as thirst does. We often say we feel very dry. What do we mean when we feel very dry? We feel lifeless. We feel dead. We feel just no energy to step forward. No more courage. And when Jesus then says that I am the water that fills you, and not only fills you, but that from you, deep within you will flow back out. It gets a sense of joy. That Jesus is saying too that I give you life. I give you joy. Give you peace. I fill the deepest needs within you. So when Jesus says, "You will know the truth," he's saying then that the Creator of life has come to give you life again, and all the abundance of life. And the truth will set you free from sin. Now, what is sin? John Wesley puts it very well. Sin is the opposite of perfection. Okay, and perfection is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, the opposite of that, of sin, then, is to live a life that does not love God, does not acknowledge the love of God, that does things without loving God, without loving our neighbor. So, anything that hurts our neighbor, anything that doesn't even consider our neighbor. So two days ago on Monday, I talked about our self-focus. When we help a person, we're actually looking at ourselves. That's not loving your neighbor. To love our neighbor then is to focus on the needs, addressing the needs of our neighbor. To ask ourselves, what does my neighbor need? What does this person in front of me need? And the focus is on them, and addressing their needs. <clears throat> and so sin then is looking at ourselves, obviously, looking at ourselves and how to gratify ourselves, how to. <clears throat> Help us ourselves. And why then are we slaves to sin? <coughs> Excuse me, I forgot.、Uh, why are we slaves to sin? Well, there are two characteristics of slavery that Jesus talks about. First, slavery is compulsion, and that's the most obvious. Slave has no freedom. A slave does not make his own decisions. He is forced constantly. To do the bidding of his master, and so Jesus says, when anyone sins, he is a slave to sin, which means then that you are a compulsive sinner. All of us are compulsive sinners. And why is that so? Because when you do not know the truth that God has come after you, to look for you, to give you abundant life, then we are all trying our hardest to survive, to cope, to make do, to indulge. Because we are, we need to care for ourselves. And often we say, you know, this person gasu gasi, and we say it is a Singaporean trait. It is not a Singaporean trait. It is a human trait. Any person who does not know that God is looking after your needs, does who does not believe that God is has your best interest in his heart, who does not believe that it is God who fills the inner being of yours. We'll have to be gasu and gasi because we have to seek our own. If I don't get the things that I want, if I don't fight for my things, if I don't fight for my promotion, if I don't fight for what is mine, whether it is a queue in the hawker centre, whether it is 
and lying for promotion, whether it is to be loved, whether it's for someone to serve me and give me what's mine, whether it is someone to respect me. If I do not believe that God is watching after my interests, then I got to fight for my interests. I have to beat others, I have to hurt others, I have to step over others, I have to lie to others. If I do not believe that God satisfies my deepest needs, it is God who will pour His living water into me and allow His living water to flow from me. If I don't believe that deep within, that God will give me the joy and the peace from deep within, then I got to seek my own satisfaction. I have to seek it from my material wealth, that I could buy material things to make me happy. I know of a very rich person who was seeking fullness of life and he had rejected God then and he bought many things. He bought different cars. He bought large cars, expensive cars to make himself happy only to realize that after a few weeks or months of excitement, it didn't excite him anymore. We seek after different things, material things of sex, of hatred, anything to fill that deepest need within ourselves because we don't believe that God can fill that. We don't wait for Him and we don't say, God, fill it then. We believe then that if we don't get the things that I want, then I don't get the satisfaction that I need. And that's because we live without knowing the truth that God came to look for us and to offer us bread that satisfies, water that flows through us, light that will take away the darkness from our lives. And so we become compulsive sinners all the time. It is automatic thoughts. The moment we see something, the moment we see that we are deprived of something, our automatic thought tells us go and fight for it. Go and grab it, go and take this because you can't be satisfied unless you have these things. And so we sin. We sin because we do not know that God has offered himself to satisfy every need that we have. We become compulsive sinners. We can't help it. We just have to do it. And therefore we are slaves to sin. The second characteristic of a sin, as Jesus says, is that the, the of a slave, sorry, is that the slave where does it say? The slave does not remain in the house forever. In verse 33, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The difference between a slave and a son is that the slave does not belong to the house. I remember more than 20 years ago we had this controversy in Singapore. It was quite a silly and yet cruel controversy. It was about whether maids could enjoy swimming pools in private condominiums. Some people had complained that they saw people's maids having a nice swim in the condo and they said, these maids should not be swimming there because they're not residents, they are servants. And so there was a decision that the only time a maid could go into the pool was when they're watching after the employer's child, the safety, but they were not allowed to enjoy the pool. They could get into the water, but they could not enjoy the water. They are servants. And I remember that that was true too when I was working, no doubt as a lawyer, but as a very lowly lawyer in Hong Kong. 
and my boss's house was huge. Each bedroom was the size of probably my HDB flat, and each bathroom was the size of my living room with a full-size jacuzzi. They had, I can't remember how many rooms, so many rooms. And it was just a lavish, lavish mansion. But what? I was just the servant. I was just a lowly employee. None of these facilities could be enjoyed by me. I could only go there, gawk at them, sit down and work and get out. The other day, I was just a few days ago, I was driving past um, District 10, all those huge, expensive mansions. And I was wondering again how people who lived there felt. And then I saw a Filipino domestic helper walk into the house and I thought, wow, what does it feel like to work in a mansion? Well, immediately I realized nothing at all. Pain, big house to clean. You don't enjoy a single thing, you're just there to clean the house. It's not your house, there's no sense of pride going in there. You don't feel like, oh, I, I am a servant in a big house, you're a servant in an HDB flat. It makes no difference. In fact, servant in a big house means you've got more cleaning to do. In that sense, servant, slave, you don't belong to that place. It's not yours. None of the riches and the luxuries and the goodness belong to you. You are just a temporary person. A son is different. A son belongs to the home and everything that is given, it belongs, is there, is yours. The home belongs to the child, the son and the owner. And therefore when Jesus says, when the son, when Jesus, God, sets you free, you are free indeed, it means also that all of these things in the kingdom of heaven, all the riches of God are yours. God's favour is yours. God's love is yours. God's joy is yours. God's peace is yours. Let me read from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, just as an example. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these are ours. No longer do we lack joy, well, should we lack joy. No longer should we lack peace or patience or kindness, whether to give kindness or to receive kindness from God. We have a very kind Father in heaven. Do we believe that? Do we know that all that kindness from God is ours so that we can also extend kindness to others? That self-control is ours. Because we have a God who helps us to control our urges because He gives us the best. And so this is the reality check. Do you have these things? Do you know that you are a child? That God came, the Creator came to look for you, to seek you out, to give you all of these things. And therefore you need not be a compulsive sinner anymore. Everything that you need, our Father gives to you. And now the only thing that's required of you is to believe it. That's a challenge though. And I want you to keep asking God, God, help me in my unbelief. I want to believe this. I want to believe that you came to seek me and to give me all that is good, all the blessings. I don't have to survive. I can flourish. I can have life in this life-destroying world. 
I can find life. And the one thing that you need is to say to God, God, help me to believe. Let us pray. Father, you have given us, you have come to us. Come to us as a living Father, as a life-giving God. And God, we have lived in poverty. We have lived not believing that you give us the best. We have grasped, we have held tight to the little things that we own, the poor, wretched things that we have. When we could open our hands and receive from you the best of everything. Father, we look at ourselves, whether we have been church pastors or leaders or Christians for many years or very few years, the reality check is there, Lord, that if we feel impoverished, if we still have to grasp our little few belongings, if we still fear for our future and we sin because no one else, we believe that no one else will care for us, then Lord, help us in our unbelief. Father, we want to believe. We want to believe that we are no longer slaves, but that all the riches that are yours are ours, are mine. Father, help me in my unbelief. That day by day I may believe more and more that you are that wonderful God who lavishes your love on us. That we may live freely, love freely and enjoy this life even when circumstances are not favourable because we have a Father who loves us, who sought after us who came to shed light in our lives came to feed us and to quench our thirst help us Lord in our unbelief that we may believe so I pray in Jesus name Amen well then, I know that you will have a blessed day. God bless you. Goodbye.